Okay. Hello and welcome to Sport Professor Podcast, the show for the sports student and fan who wants to learn more about the underpinnings of the sporting world. I'm your professor, Dr. Drew Sikansky, and today we will deep dive the men's NCAA basketball tournament. Beginning with a quick overview of the history and evolution of the tournament, the podcast moves through the 80-year history before settling in to talk about the current day structure. So if you've ever wondered how the NCAA beat out the NIT for postseason supremacy, or what the NCAA does with the billions of dollars in revenue they make from the tournament, this is the podcast for you. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of the Sport Professor Podcast. Today, I want to get back into the podcast flow by talking once again about the National Collegiate Athletic Association and maybe the biggest sporting event in the United States, the NCAA Men's Basketball Tournament. Now, in our first ever podcast, we talked about the history of the NCAA, but just in case you haven't listened to that or in case you forget what we discuss, I want to begin this episode by providing a quick overview of the organization and college sports in general and then dive in to college basketball specifically. So, remember, American colleges in the 1700s and the early 1800s were viewed not as a place for students to engage in sports or really any form of extracurricular activity, but rather they were seen as a place for the elite of our society to send their children to be educated and prepared for various future professions. Now, as such, colleges and universities tightly regulated the actions of their students, having strict schedules for them and allowing very little free time for them to engage in different forms of recreation and games. Students would often become restless as a result of this and want to rebel against the structure of the college and the university. They would do this sometimes through acts of vandalism or through various acts of youthful indiscretion. This finally came to a head in the mid-1850s as universities grew worried about these restless college students and so they started to implement different forms of physical activities into the curriculum as a means to provide an outlet for all the students pent up energy and hopefully curtail the disturbances that were happening. The first physical activities that took place on campuses were very similar to the modern day gymnastics that we do in PE classes. And as scholars and historians have noted, they were done to help the health of the student population. Why the idea of getting students involved in organized physical activity to help them with what became known as restless campus disorder was good, these PE type classes didn't really catch on with the students. And it wasn't really until the 1880s when students started to participate in various ball games that sport on college campuses really took hold. Initially, these games were just played between students at the same college in a form of what we would call intra-collegiate sport. However, the various different ball games and what we are now calling sporting events soon took hold across college campuses and it led to the students wanting to compete not only against each other on the same campus, but against other campuses as well. These games and competitions caught on like wildfire. And when you combine that with the growth of, at the time of people attending and watching these events, 
what became known as the rise in spectator sports, all of a sudden we have this massive explosion of popularity of college athletics. Illustrating this was the first ever intracollegiate sporting competition, which was a crew meet between Harvard and Yale in 1852. Now, this meet was put on for the purpose of being a spectator event. And it was put on in concert with the opening of a new rail line to help amuse all the people and all the dignitaries in America that had come together. And the event was seen as a massive success. And it led to a number of other sporting competitions between colleges. We have the first intercollegiate baseball game between Amherst and Williams in 1859. The first football game took place 10 years later between Rutgers and Princeton's. And most important for our conversation today, we had the first basketball game in 1896 between the University of Iowa and the University of Chicago. But before we talk more about college basketball, let's briefly discuss what happens next in college sports. As the sports become more and more popular, more and more people from outside the sporting world want to try to take control of it and dictate what's going to happen within it. So first we have students that are running everything. Then the faculties take over, worried that the students are getting too distracted by the sporting events. And then that's followed by university presidents taking over when they realize that there might be a way to make money off of these events from not only the spectators, but also from establishing successful teams and getting donations from alumni. This finally comes to a head in 1906 when the International Athletic Association of the United States was formed, which was later renamed in 1910 the National Collegiate Athletic Association. Now, the original purpose of the NCAA was to, quote, regulate and supervise collegiate athletics through the United States so that they could be maintained on an ethical plan in keeping with the dignity and high purpose of education, end quote. However, in 1921, the NCAA expanded upon this purpose, and they started to organize and offer different national championships. First, they held a national championship for men's track and field, and Ronald Smith describes a championship event well in his book called Pay for Play, and he says the NCAA, quote, promoted his first national competition by sponsoring a national championship in track and field in 1921. Amos Alonzo Stagg, the University of Chicago's representative to the NCA and football and track coach at Chicago, organized the meet held on Chicago Stagg Field. It could be considered a success from several standpoints. Nearly half of the 102 NCA member institutions were represented at the June competition, with 31 of the 45 teams gaining points including institutions from all sections of the nation. One athlete, Earl Thomas of Dartmouth, tied a world record in the 120 high hurdles at 14.4 seconds, even in wet conditions. The NCAA was pleased that the profits from the national championship paid for two-thirds of all travel expenses of the teams involved. Track and field was the first of a number of championships sponsored by the NCAA, though none would be nearly as important as the National Basketball Championship first contested in 1939. But before we get to 1939, I want to talk about 1938. Because before the NCAA sponsored its first postseason tournament in basketball, there were a group of New York City schools, including Fordham, Manhattan College, NYU, St. John's, and Wagner College, that hosted the National Invitational Tournament, which became known as the NIT. 
and it was a massive success for postseason collegiate basketball. And the NCAA, seeing the success of this tournament and knowing how to operate its own tournaments, decided in 1939 to hold its own national championship tournament. Now, the first tournament in 1939 featured eight teams with Oregon beating Ohio State in the championship game. But there was, however, an issue. And that was that Oregon couldn't really claim to be the national championship since the NIT was also being played and won by Long Island and at the time viewed as an equal if not superior tournament. So the NCAA tournament started off being this head-to-head battle with the NIT to establish who was the superior tournament. And the NCAA continued to go head-to-head with the NIT and compete for superiority for years. And they oftentimes battled to have the best teams choose to play in their tournaments. But the problem was is that teams were consistently choosing the NIT over the NCAA. Now, given that the NCAA was established to regulate college sports, the organization did not like having to compete with other tournaments and other organizations for teams to play in their own sponsored tournament. And since teams weren't outright choosing the NCAA-sponsored event, the association decided to implement various rules and try to force teams to choose their tournament over the NIT. And the first rule was passed in 1953 and stated that teams could not play in more than one postseason tournament. Now, this applied to all sports, but in particular to college basketball. Before 1953, teams might receive a bid to both the NIT or an invitation to both the NIT tournament and the NCAA postseason tournament. And as long as the schedules didn't conflict, they could actually choose to play in both. So the NCAA thought, well, if we institute a rule that says you can only play in one postseason tournament, then teams will choose to play in ours, thus allowing us to gain superiority over the NIT. However, that wasn't really the case. Because teams, when forced to pick, oftentimes would still choose the NIT over the NCAA. So as schools continue to pick that NIT tournament, the NCAA decided to pass another rule, this time in 1961, that they called the expected participant rule, which stated that if a team was invited to an NCAA tournament, they were quote-unquote expected to accept the invitation and participate in that tournament. However, that word expected caused a lot of issues. As a team in 1961 and then five teams in 1962 declined invitations to the NCAA tournament and picked the NIT instead. This was exacerbated in 1970 when Marquette, who at the time was ranked 8th in the country, accepted a bid to the NIT tournament despite receiving that NCAA tournament bid. The problem was, just because they were expected to accept didn't mean that they had to. The rumor at the time with Marquette was that the coach didn't like what the NCAA tournament had done with them in terms of seeding and where they were supposed to play, so he just declined that tournament and went to the NIT and won that tournament instead. So anyways, as this battle between the NIT and the NCAA for superiority continued through the 1970s, the NCAA finally instituted very clear-cut language in 1981 to hopefully end all confusion and lead to it being the best postseason tournament for college basketball. It was at this time they passed what was known as the Commitment to Participate Rule. And that rule stated, quote, any team invited to participate in NCAA postseason tournament was required to participate in the NCAA tournament 
or forgo postseason competition altogether. In other words, if you were invited to the NSA postseason tournament, you had to accept or you couldn't play in any other competition. Violations of this rule, most importantly, were deemed to be major NCAA rule violations. Major violations lead to the toughest penalties from the NCAA. This thus essentially forced teams to play in the NCAA tournament, making that tournament once and for all the best college postseason basketball tournament in the country. However, the NIT did not just go away without a fight. As they saw their numbers and their prestige slowly decline, finally in 2001, they filed a lawsuit against the NCA challenging the commitment to participation rule, and they claimed that that rule violated antitrust laws. Now, the problem was that the year before, in 2000, the NCA's own subcommittee on antitrust had recommended that the NCA abolish the rule because they feared that they would potentially lose any lawsuit to antitrust violations. Now, this had potentially even bigger impact on the NCA, as if they would have lost this lawsuit and been found in violation of antitrust law, there would have been legal precedent that other industries or other organizations could have used to fight the NCA, claiming that it was acting as a monopoly or a cartel. Now, the interesting thing is how the NCA actually dealt with this problem. They didn't just allow the lawsuit to go through. They decided that they would buy the NIT tournament. They paid them $40 million for the property, and they paid another $16 million in damages. And then once they owned the NIT, they just dropped the lawsuit against themselves to avoid any potential suits based on this commitment to participate rule. So it was a pretty ingenious thing that they did. They just bought the other tournament and established that they were the tier one and the NIT was tier two. But these rule changes were not the only things that changed within the NCAA tournament over the years. And the most basic change that we've seen with the tournament is just the number of teams that have participate from a year to year basis. As I said, in the first year of the tournament in 1939, all the way until 1950, there were eight teams that were invited to participate. They doubled this in 1951 and 1952 to 16 teams and they increased it again in 1953 to 22 to 25 teams. Now, that number 22 to 25 was in place from 1953 to 1968, and it was just dependent upon how many of the schools that were offered spots actually accepted the bids. Remember, at this time, some schools might be offered a spot in the NSA, but they might decline it to go to the NIT. Then, from 1968 to 1974, they had an established 25 teams playing in the tournament each year. Now, an important thing to remember at this time is that the NCAA rules stipulated that only one team per conference could be in the tournament. This created a number of problems as the top teams in the country oftentimes missed the tournament due to the fact that they didn't win their conference. So, for example, in 1970, South Carolina was a perfect 14-0 in the ACC during the regular season, but they missed the NCAA tournament because they failed to win the ACC postseason tournament. The same thing happened the following year to the University of Southern California, who missed the NCAA tournament, even though they were ranked number two in the country. In 1974, we saw it happen again when Maryland, who was ranked third in the country, missed the tournament. Now, all these teams ended up not going on to play in the NCAA tournament, 
but they went on to play and some even went on to win the NIT. And since the NCA was continuously battling with the NIT for superiority, they decided they had to change this rule. And so in 1975, the NCAA changed the rule that stated only one team could be in per conference, thus giving rise to what we now call an at-large bid. So a team didn't have to win their conference, but they could still make the NCAA tournament. That same year, the NCAA expanded their field once again to accommodate these at-large bids. And from 1975 to 1978, 32 teams were invited to play in the NCAA tournament every year. And then in 1979, they again increased the size to 40, and then they grew to 48 in 1980 to 1982. They increased to 52 teams in 1983, and then 53 teams in 1984, before finally setting on 64 teams in 1985. The tournament maintained that size until 2001, when they added a 65th team. And the final change to the number of schools in the tournament was made in 2011, when the NCA decided on having 68 teams in the field. And that was made up of 32 conference champions who received an automatic bid and then 36 at-large bids. The question you might have after hearing all this is, why did the number of teams change so much so often over the years? And there's really a few answers to this. The first one is something that we've been talking about. As the NCA continued to compete against the NIT for participants, they added more and more teams to try to lure teams away from the NIT and into their tournament. The second and just as important answer to this question about why we continue to change is that we've had a constant change in the number of universities and the number of conferences in Division I NCA. And so as we continue to grow the number of conferences, we continue to increase the number of automatic bids. The more Division I conference champions, the more automatic bids they are, So we have to continuously extend the field. But finally, a key point, especially in the modern day, is that the addition of the number of teams in the tournament also results in addition in the number of games that are being played. And as we grow the number of games, we grow the inventory that the NSA has to sell to television networks. Now, what do we mean by inventory? Inventory just means things that these networks actually put on TV. And so by growing the number of games, by adding teams, the NCA is actually able to generate more revenue for itself and its member institutions. And the most recent television deal that was struck, CBS and Turner agreed to pay $8.8 billion to extend their current contract with the NCA from 2025 to 2032. And they're going to be the sole broadcaster of the NCA men's tournament during that time. And if you look at the current deal, which began in 2010, and you combine it with this extension, that means that the NCAA from 2010 to 2032 will receive a total of $19.6 billion for the broadcast rights just for their men's basketball tournament. If we look at the numbers a little bit more closely, starting in 2025, the NCAA will receive approximately $1.1 billion dollars a year just from men's basketball now that's a staggering amount of revenue which oftentimes lead people to ask one big question how do the teams that make the tournament get a piece of all that money well it's a complicated formula but i want to take a shot at simplifying as much as i can for you so first off it's important to note that not all of that money that's made by the tournament goes directly to the schools participating. 
The largest chunk of the money actually goes directly to the NCAA, which uses it to fund things like academic programs or scholarships or financial assistance for student-athletes. Not just basketball student-athletes, but all student-athletes. Some of the money even goes to pay for things like administrative costs or to pay for other sport tournaments the NCAA runs. Now, the remainder of that money, which from all accounts that I can find is approximately 30% of the revenue generated from the basketball tournament, goes into something called the Basketball Fund. The Basketball Fund was established in 1990 after the NCAA signed a $1 billion television deal with CBS to broadcast its men's basketball tournament from 1991 to 1997. After the NCAA signed this deal, the NCAA and the conferences, which had up until that point distributed money to the schools that made the tournament, they became worried that the increased revenue they were making and going to be distributing would cause schools to become ultra-focused on winning games as a means to generate revenue for their athletic program. They thought this could actually cut the heart of amateurism, a core principle that they stand for. They also thought that it might cause those schools that were continuously getting into the tournament to become separated pretty far in ability from those schools that were struggling to make the tournament because those schools that were making the tournament were generating so much more revenue. They thought that it also might encourage schools to cheat more, to potentially gain that valuable resource of money. So as a result, they decided to give less money directly to the schools and redirect a large portion of that profits and revenue to other areas like student scholarship funds or athlete assistance, as I previously noted. So like I said, approximately 30% of the money generated from the tournament was earmarked for this basketball fund. And they came up with a very unique way to distribute it. Now, as the NCA describes it, quote, the basketball fund provides for monies to be distributed to Division I conferences based on the performance in the Division I men's basketball championship over a six-year rolling period. Independent institutions receive a full unit share based on its tournament participation over a six-year rolling average. The basketball fund payments are sent to the conferences and independent institutions in mid-April of each year. So at this point, let me try to break down what the NCAA is saying there. The basic principle is that for every team that a conference gets into the tournament, that conference is awarded a unit. So let's look at the Big Ten for the 2018 NCAA basketball tournament. The Big Ten got four teams into that tournament, so they were awarded four units. In addition to just having those four teams in, for every win that each of those four teams has, the conference is awarded an additional unit. So the Big Ten won eight total games in the tournament in 2018, so they get an additional eight units awarded to them. So altogether, they were awarded 12 units for the 2018 NCAA tournament. Now, each unit is related to a specific dollar amount, and that dollar amount changes year to year, but in 2018, that dollar amount was around $275,000 per unit. But we don't calculate the payoff to the school based off a single year. We look at the six-year rolling average. That means for 2018, we take 2018 and the previous six years into account. For 2019, we take 2019 in the previous six years into account. So each year, you add up the total units you earned over the course of that year and the previous five years to get a total of six years, 
and you multiply the number of units that you have by how much a unit is worth that year. In 2018, that was about $275,000 per unit, as I already said. And the amount you get through that multiplication is the amount that the NCA gives to the conference. And then the conference gets to decide how they're going to break up that money and distribute it to their schools. The NCAA provides guidelines, but they're not rules that are hard and fast. The NCAA suggests that all schools, whether they make the tournament or not, get an equal share of that revenue. And most conferences actually will abide by that. But some conferences will award those schools that actually make the tournament and make deep runs a little bit more money. So as you can see, the money can add up pretty fast for those conferences like the ACC or the Big Ten, which typically have multiple teams not only in the tournament, but multiple teams that will go deep in the tournament. If we look at just the ACC, for example, in 2015, the ACC got 21 units, which just for that year, 21 units equated to about $30 million. If we take into account the six-year rolling average, the ACC got a check for $39.9 million last year from the basketball fund, which they then divided up amongst their schools. So this basketball fund can generate a good amount of money that goes to each individual school. And the great thing about the ACC is that those schools that might not have as much success as your Dukes or North Carolinas also are getting a good portion of that money. That's why conference affiliation becomes so important for the NCAA men's basketball tournament. And that's why some of these mid-major conferences are really pushing to have multiple teams make it so that they, as a conference, can generate more money to distribute to their schools. An important thing to remember with all of this is why we have such big numbers and why television networks are able to pay the NCA so much just to broadcast the games. And it's because there's such a vast interest in the tournament among not only avid sport fans, but also casual sport fans. In 2018, the tournament drew on average 8.6 million viewers across all platforms per day. And we say all platforms, that means a combination of both digital or things that we can find online and television. And to put that into comparison, the top TV shows, things like Grey's Anatomy and Scandal or How to Get Away with Murder, they drew on average 4 to 7 million viewers a night. So the NCAA tournament is drawing a minimum of 1 million extra viewers and a maximum of 4 million extra viewers a night. And with such higher numbers, CBS and Turner can charge a premium for commercials during these games. That allows them to generate a great deal of revenue from the tournament. And the latest numbers that I could find are 2016, where CBS and Turner generated a reported $1.25 billion in ad sales, according to Contra Media. So even though Turner and CBS are paying almost a billion dollars in 2016 to get the rights to broadcast, they're making well more of that just through selling the advertisements. And the question you might be asking is, well, why are so many people interested in these college basketball games? Well, a large part of that has to do with gambling. A new study that was just released this past week found one in five American adults are expected to bet on the tournament, with most of them entering into contests to see who can pick the most games correct, things we call tournament challenges or bracket challenges. That will result, according to routers, in a combined $8.5 million being bet in the tournament this year. That number will arguably just continue to grow in upcoming years 
as sport gambling becomes legal in more and more states, and the stigma that's surrounding gambling decreases. So we see such a vast number of people watching the games because they have a vested financial interest in the games based off of the fact that they're entering into these betting pools. So there you have it. There's a very quick overview of the history of the men's NCAA basketball tournament with some insight into the current operations and finances of the tournament. Hopefully, this podcast has helped you see that the NCAA tournament has come a long way since 1939 when eight teams played against each other to establish who was the best. The tournament battled the NIT over the years for prestige, finally having won out due to numerous rule changes that the NCAA instituted and maybe just as important through buying out the NIT tournament itself. Today, the tournament is a multi-billion dollar event comprised of 68 teams that is not only the best basketball tournament in the world, but maybe one of the world's premier sporting events. Now, if there's anything we did not cover about the men's NCAA basketball tournament that you are interested in learning, please feel free to reach out to us on Instagram at the Sport Professor. Give us a follow so you can stay up to date on our latest Sport Professor news and get additional insight through our weekly posts about our podcast topics. Until next week, we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Sport Professor Podcast.